Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am a cog in the wheel and will always be. Keep the ball rolling. Rock and roll has been woven into the cultural fabric of Cleveland for seven decades. But 34 years ago, there was no certainty that the much-anticipated museum honoring the genre would make its home on the shores of Lake Erie. It took lots of money, political posturing, and a performance by Chuck Berry, and most importantly, the passion of Clevelanders to bring the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to Northeast Ohio. This is the story of how a museum and the music revived a city. The story of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame begins in 1983. Rumblings of an institution paying homage to the pioneers of rock and roll had permeated through the upper levels of the recording industry for years. Norm N. Knight, a music historian and Cleveland DJ who had moved to the radio big leagues of New York City, found himself in the mix. Knight received a phone call from longtime friend and former pop star Leslie Gore, inviting him to sit in on a meeting about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on August 10, 1983. The get-together took place in a loft apartment on East 28th Street in Manhattan, with a group of individuals Knight refers to as lightweights in the music industry. The lackluster gathering was a bust, but months later, Knight found himself rubbing elbows with a different set of individuals, titans of the music industry whose names pop up time and time again in the retelling of rock and roll history. A couple of months later, Seymour Stein from Sire Records contacted me and said he'd like me to be a part of the Rules of Nominating Committee. And when I saw that Ahmed Erdogan was on board, and Jan Wenner was on board, and John Landau was on board, and uh, Jerry Wexler was on board, and Mo Austin was on board, and I'm looking at these names, I knew something was going to happen with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ahmet Erdogan, the mastermind behind Atlantic Records, became the leader of the group. His label helped establish and solidify the careers of Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, The Drifters, Ruth Brown, and numerous others in the 1950s. No single person in the music industry commanded more respect. Early discussions about the Rock Hall revolved around the concept of a television special, similar to the American Music Awards, which debuted a decade earlier. But Knight says Erdogan had a different vision in mind. We'd go to the boardroom at, at Atlantic Records, and be about a dozen of us sitting around. And if we were there for two hours, an hour and a half was spent on the stories of the good old days. Hey, remember this, remember that, remember we were, they were talking, you know, it was like a get-together. And then they were talking about, you know, we'd like to put together uh, a, a celebration and they were having a problem also with the Black Tie Network, which was a company that they wanted to do a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing where they would have an awards on TV. They were looking to sell a television idea. That's what they were pushing, and that's what they wanted. They had no idea. They had no foresight about the fact of being able to have a, a historical place, a museum with archives and everything else. All they wanted to do was a TV show. When Ahmed came on board and his group, 
He didn't want that. He wanted this to be a legitimate thing, to like the Baseball Hall of Fame or the Football Hall of Fame, to preserve the history of this popular music known as rock and roll. Initial talk for the location of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame began and ended with New York. Mayor at the time, Ed Koch, presented the option of a brownstone in one of the city's liveliest neighborhoods to serve as the museum's home. Plans for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame appeared set. However, word of the meetings in New York began to make its way to other parts of the country. That included a once mighty Midwest city whose reputation had taken a hit. By the 1980s, Cleveland had become a punchline. The city was mostly known outside of Ohio for the night the Cuyahoga River burn, a series of sports blunders, and its struggling economy. However, one thing Cleveland always had to its credit was a thriving music scene rooted in the origins of rock and roll. Hello, everybody. How are you all? This is yours truly, Alan Free. Get your dancing shoes on, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Dance Party! In 1951... Alan Freed, a.k.a. the King of the Moondoggers, began playing rhythm and blues records on Cleveland radio station WJW. It marked one of the first times R&B records performed by black artists were played on mainstream airwaves. Freed would go on to become a national sensation and is credited with popularizing the phrase rock and roll. John Gorman, former operations manager for WMMS, recalls Cleveland's impact on the early days of rock and roll. Grant, rock and roll wasn't invented in Cleveland, but, you know, the... Everything from rockabilly to rhythm and blues to blues and all of that, which made up rock and roll, all those genres, uh, were being exposed on Cleveland media. And most cities, you know, were, in those days, they didn't play what was called race music or hillbilly music or anything like that. So, you know, Cleveland does have the distinction of, of, of uh, you know, being, a, a, you know, one of the first stations, if, if, if first the cities, if not the first city, to play this music on, on commercial radio. Cleveland would remain an influential rock and roll city in the decades that followed Freed. Whether it was legendary shows at places like Leo's Casino, Gleason's Musical Bar, or the Agora, Belkin Productions became a regional concert titan, with massive concerts at Richfield Coliseum in the 1970s, while WMMS became a launching pad for future rock and roll Hall of Fame acts like Bruce Springsteen, Rush, and ACDC. <laughs> With WMMS's influence on the concert industry at an all-time high, it was only natural that word of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would eventually reach Gorman and his staff. It, it, you know, it, it really started with a, uh, a phone call a couple of years earlier from a guy named Eddie Spizel, who used to run an ad agency in Cleveland and moved to San Francisco, moved his ad agency to San Francisco. And uh, he had heard a story on, on, uh, on a San Francisco TV station that Bill Graham, who was the concert promoter from from San Francisco and had a lot of a lot to do with breaking a lot of those acts like Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead and all that back in the in the 60s, he was talking about doing a building a rock hall near the Ghirardelli Square, and Eddie Spizel called uh, called me at MMS and said, you know. You guys got to do something. You know, you're from Cleveland. Cleveland's where it belongs, not San Francisco. You know, he was living there now. And we uh, called uh, a person by the name of Tunch Aram in Atlantic at, at Atlantic Records. And Tunch Aram was he was Amr's right hand man. 
And uh, I, I didn't know Amit well enough to just call him up out of the blue, but I did know Tunch. And I told Tunch about, hey, if, if there's ever going to be a rock hall, it ought to be in Cleveland. And Tunch said, well, let me talk to Amit. And 24 hours later, Tunch came back and he explained that Amit Oregon, you know, who, who president of Atlantic Records, had an idea to do a, a rock and roll hall of fame for himself. It was just coincidence calling Tunch and finding out that Amit was also working on doing a rock hall, well, Armit was a lot more close, closer to it because you know, he ran a label for years that really had so much to do with the, the birth of rock and roll. And the way Armit, the way Armit had approached the uh, rock hall was he, he was watching the Golden Globes and, uh, with some people and watching them, he said, you know, why can't we do something like that with rock and roll? And that's what evolved into doing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And at the time, you know, he was looking to do a rock hall and have it in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just kind of, kind of in the planning stages in his mind. But, you know, what happened is uh, when Tunch told him, you know, about Cleveland being interested and if there's a rock hall, it should be built in Cleveland, Ahmed said back to Tunch, tell Cleveland what will they do to get it. Soon after, a committee was formed to figure out a way to bring the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to Cleveland. The group was led by K. Michael Benz, Executive Vice President of the Greater Cleveland Growth Association. It also featured members of WMMS, the Belkin Brothers, Agora owner Hank Lacani, politicians Dick Celeste, George Vuinovich, and others. The only thing missing was a direct connection to the Rock Hall planning meetings taking place in New York. That's when the committee reached out to Cleveland native Norm Knight for help. Uh- when I was totally with the New York group from 83, 84, and 85 until May of 85 when I got my phone call from Hank Lacani, because Hank knew I was, when they were talking about doing something in Cleveland, he said, hey, I know Norman Knight, and uh, I know he's involved with it. Well, why don't you have him come here? He could talk to us about it. And I flew in, and I had that first meeting with the various Bill, uh, Bill Bryan, Mike Benz, all those people at the, at the very first meeting. And I explained to them, I said, guys, you're, you're spinning your wheels. This is not going to happen. It's happening in New York. And that's when they said to me, well, do you think you could get them to consider Cleveland? I said, I don't think so, but I can try. And I went off to do it. When I came into the picture and I convinced Amit in May of 85 to have an open mind about having someplace other than New York, and he agreed to have that first meeting in July 18th with our group from Cleveland that came in, all of a sudden they realized Yes, if we do consider another place like Cleveland, we could probably do the things. We could make this a real big deal. But then again, when when they had the idea that maybe we can do this with Cleveland, the other cities found out about it. And they said, oh, my goodness. Now, if they have an open mind to being able to have the Hall of Fame other than New York, we have to make a pitch. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was now up for grabs. Cleveland found itself competing with Memphis, the home of Sun Studios and Stax Records, Philadelphia, where Dick Clark filmed American Bandstand, Nashville, the country music capital of the world, Detroit, home of Motown, New York, which was still in play, and other cities. Cleveland's pitch was centered on Freed and being the birthplace of rock and roll, both as a term and a phenomenon. Politics, and more importantly, money, were key factors. But Cleveland's committee and its citizens began looking for other ways to separate the city from the pack. Memphis had Elvis, Detroit had Motown, Philadelphia had Dick Clark. But Cleveland wasn't without its own history of noteworthy performers. Influential R&B acts like Screamin' Jay Hawkins, the Valentinos, and the Moonglows all got their start in Cleveland.
the 1970s and 80s, punk and power pop emerges impactful forces out of Northeast Ohio. The list of influential acts included the Dead Boys, Pierre Ubu, and the Raspberries, a pop rock band that included future solo star and Cleveland native Eric Carmen. Carmen's career had taken off in the 1970s on the strength of hits like All By Myself and Never Gonna Fall In Love Again. In 1984, he penned the hit Almost Paradise for the Footloose soundtrack and released his sophomore album and comeback hit, I Want to Hear It From Your Lips. That's when Eric's brother, Fred Carmen, presented the singer with an idea. I had talked to Eric at that time, and I'd said, look, I think if there's anything that we can do to get this here, we ought to do it. And I think we ought to write a song and kind of make it be the anthem to try and bring it here. And um, as Eric frequently was about these things, he was um, a little skeptical. And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm not sure. He said, I think this whole thing is going to be very political. I said, I'm sure you're right. It is going to be political. But, you know, what have we got to lose by doing it? You know, if we can do something to push it over the top, if it's close, I don't know if it'll make a difference or not, but we ought to try and do it. So he said, well, I'll make a deal. Go write me some lyrics. And if I like the lyrics, I'll think about writing the music. So off I went. And uh, interestingly, the, the lyrics almost wrote themselves. It was one of those things where, as you thought your way through it a little bit, it, it, it took me, I think, probably 45 minutes to write the lyrics. Um, and I gave the lyrics to Eric. He looked at them and he said, wow, these are these are pretty good. And he agreed to write the music. The end result was the anthem, The Rock Stops Here. While Carmen was a name in Cleveland, Fred recalls that releasing the single wasn't as easy as one may think. We uh, contacted, um, he was a bigwig at the, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the time, and, and told them that we were going to do this and ask if they wanted to, to support it. And they very politically said no. Um, primarily, I think, because... Um, they didn't want to be associated with something that might or might not have been a positive um, thing. So the group that was trying to bring it here basically said, you know, we're not interested at this point. They became interested afterwards when it became a big hit, but not not in the beginning. Um, the uh, process of releasing it became a bone of contention. We what were WMS radio was, you know, the 800-pound gorilla at, at that point in time. And WMMS um, basically came to us and said, if we don't get it first, we're not going to play it. We really had an issue with that because we wanted to release it. Our plan had been to release it to all radio, all Cleveland radio, at the same time on the same day, not favoring any one over the other. Um, but this really presented a dilemma because uh, MMS was probably the, the, the biggest name in, in radio in Cleveland at that time. And while I didn't think that they would not play it if we didn't give it to them first, it was of great concern to us. Um, ultimately, we decided to stick to our guns and give it to everybody at the same time. It did work out. 
it went uh, almost immediately to number one across uh, all the radio stations in Cleveland. Indeed, The Rock Stops Here was a huge hit on Cleveland radio and coincided with local media encouraging audiences to participate in USA Today's unofficial telephone poll asking which city should get the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Clevelanders flooded the switchboard to the tune of 110,000 calls according to the Chicago Tribune. The next closest city, Memphis, had 7,300. The first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony took place on January 23rd at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. The event was not televised. At that point, the location of a future Rock and Roll Hall of Fame museum was uncertain. But given the USA Today poll results and positive word out of New York, Cleveland began preparing for celebration. March 21, 1986 marked the 34th birthday of the Moondog Coronation Ball, a concert put on by Alan Freed in 1952 that's generally regarded as the first major rock and roll concert. In honor of the anniversary and pending Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announcement, numerous concerts and parties were planned for what would become known as a Rock and Roll Day in Cleveland. The centerpiece event would be the Moondog Coronation Ball 2, put on by WMMS and its sister oldie station WHK. Several headliners were considered for the show, but in the end... There was only one real choice. Chuck Berry didn't invent rock and roll, at least not alone, but he was the first to showcase the elements and guitar riffs that would define the genre on songs like Maybelline and Johnny B. Good. As John Lennon once said, if you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. Barry became a big star in the 1950s when African-American music finally began to cross over into mainstream circles. His influence reigned supreme as rock and roll became the signature genre of the 1960s. Barry was also no stranger to Cleveland. He'd become a regular on tours organized by Freed and would perform at venues like Gleason's Musical Bar as it offered a bigger payday than shows in Barry's native St. Louis. In 1972, Barry would release his last major hit, a live recording of My Dingaling, a novelty song he first recorded in the 1960s. When I was a little bitty boy, my grandmother bought me a cute little toy. While Barry was still a draw due to his status as a pioneer, he had developed a reputation as being temperamental. Being ripped off financially early in his career left Barry scarred. He refused to tour with a band, used unrehearsed local performers, and was unwavering in his contract negotiations. But Cleveland musician and band leader Dennis Chandler, who met and played with Barry in the 1960s, saw the father of rock and roll differently. He, he was genuine. He didn't hold back anything. If, if he liked what you played, he'd tell you. If he didn't like what you played, all you had to do was look at his face and you'd know what he was thinking. <laughs> you could do better than that. Very few rehearsals, he, he expected you to know. He'd tell you what song he was going to play and what key he going to play it in. But after that, it's up to you. You follow him. If you can't follow him, you shouldn't be on the stage with him. That's uh, just the way he was. He expected you to know his music. And he had a right to be eccentric about it. 1986 served as a mini-revival of sorts for Barry. He became the first person inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that January. The year was bookended by two concerts celebrating Barry's 60th birthday, where Barry famously clashed with pupil Keith Richards. Despite any reputation that preceded him, Barry was WMMS's top choice to headline the Moondog Coronation Ball 2. The show would take place at the old Cleveland Union Terminal Station, a few years before it was turned into what is now known as the Tower City Shopping Center. The concert and Barry presented their own challenges, recalls WMMS's John Gorman. There was a problem. We could not put up the stage until the night of the show. 
and and that, that I remember that being a, that was one of the major problems in, in putting the show off because we had we got everybody lined up, but it was really you know it it it, it really took a lot of work to get the stage built to get all the the power in place the amps you know the, the, all the equipment and it was really right on the wire and then the headline at Chuck Berry Chuck Berry simply wanted cash for his performance. He wanted, I forget how much it was, but he wanted everything in cash. And uh, with Chuck Berry, no, you didn't meet him at the airport. You you got him a, a rental car. He took up the rental car, drive to the venue and walk in. And, you know, you had to have a band in advance, you know, a local band that would learn his music and, and play background. So, you know, we had to have that, all of that set for Chuck Berry. And once again, hoping that it wouldn't be, <laughs> there wouldn't be a delay Chuck Berry was flying in that day to do the show and flying out after the show. The venue itself was a large, desolate marble room that could house as many as 3,500 people. The acoustics were rough and the music was loud, but things came together and Barry put on a show Gorman describes as amazing. He was contracted to play 45 minutes on stage, which is what he normally did. And one of the, one of the things that changed with this was Chuck played for at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours. I mean, Chuck broke the format, and he was having so much fun that it, it didn't be, it, it didn't become a gig. It wasn't another gig. It was a special event. When Chuck Berry would make a personal appearance, no matter what it was, it was, it was just for him. It was a job. And you know, when he when he played this event and he realized what it was, well, it became a little more near and dear to his heart. So he was pulling out songs that he'd never play and all that. It, it was it was really an amazing amazing evening. Barry was backed by the Stratophonics, WHK's house band led by Chandler, whose familiarity with Barry made all the difference. Because of us being on the stage with him, he was comfortable with me. And the guys in my band, they they knew how to play the music, and, and it was and I I played piano. He needed a piano player. He needed somebody that could do the Johnny Johnson stuff, and I nailed it for him. And so he was so comfortable with whatever song he started, we were right there. I never saw him so relaxed on the stage. In between songs, he talked to people. He didn't just look at us and say, okay, here's the next song. There was no set list. He wanted to play uh, Almost Grown and Little Queenie. That's the one that we played, and he just flipped out because I knew the, the, the uniqueness of the beginning. Once he hit that stage, it was not about, I got to get paid first, or I got to get paid last, or I got to have this, or I got to have that, the band's got to be here, got to be there, the equipment has to be this or that. When he got on that stage, plugged the guitar and hit that first lick, that was it, man. He was rocking and rolling, and he epitomized that term like nobody else ever. The celebration would make the front page of Cleveland's Plain Dealer the next day, and would be picked up by other outlets around the country. Six weeks later, on May 5, 1986, the Hall of Fame Foundation in New York would choose Cleveland as the permanent home for a museum to be designed by the great I.M. Pei. Some credit the money as the determining factor. The Civic Committee, led by Benz, raised more than $65 million to put towards the museum. But Knight says it was multiple factors. The two things that changed the whole thing, one was money, because Cleveland was able to pony up the money that they really needed, and two, the enthusiasm 
from the people of northern Ohio to want this thing, and they wanted it so badly. Like I said, when they signed those petitions and they make those phone calls and everything else, those were the two reasons why, because later on, even uh, Sam Phillips from Memphis and everything else said, you know, you guys, at first he was fighting it, but he says you guys deserve it because you put your money where your mouth is and you were able to do it. So that's why Cleveland was able to get the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When you talk about an iconic thing, I mean, when when you look at uh, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, when you look at the Statue of Liberty in New York, uh, all these things, every single city has an identity. Cleveland did not, we had the Terminal Tower always as our identity. But all of a sudden, because of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that's an identity. Every single time there's something of a national basis, whether it was the convention, whether it was the World Series, the NBA basketball championships, they always talk about Cleveland, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fittingly, Barry would headline the concert for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in September 1995 at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. The event, which also featured Bruce Springsteen, Little Richard, Aretha Franklin, and others, celebrated the opening of the museum on Cleveland's lakefront. For Chandler, the events that took place in 1986 served as a shot in the arm for Cleveland and remain an example of a time when unity came first. It was a turning point, in my my opinion. It made people realize that this area is not just a good place to work and play, raise a family, schools, opportunity. And out of that came new life for the city. People looked at each other in a different light because of it took everybody to make it happen. Every community, every area, every ethnic background, every person from any back. And I wish the spirit of those years, or at least that year, 86, 87, I wish that would have transcended to 2020. Because if we had that spirit that we had for that short period of time today, we wouldn't have the problems we have today. Audio interviews for this episode were conducted by Cleveland.com. We'd like to thank John Gorman, Norm N. Knight, Fred Carmen, and Dennis Chandler for their contributions. We leave you with the full version of The Rock Stops Here, the 1986 anthem for bringing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to Cleveland, courtesy of Fred Carmen and Cool Records. Thank you for listening to CLE Rocks. I'm Troy L. Smith. Until next time.